One of the things that was really obvious in the tax reform is it's in order to make the number work, they had to make a lot of provisions temporary. And I think that creates a ton of uncertainty. And they really did it because ultimately they didn't want to cut spending and they wanted to cut taxes as much as they could without any fiscal responsibility. But this is going to be something they're going to have to address. Even for the tax cuts that I did not like, it is true that anything that is in nature temporary creates massive distortion and uncertainty, which are really counterproductive. Welcome to the Mercatus Center Policy Download. I'm your host, Chad Reese. It's time for one of my favorite segments, What's on Tap?, I'm here with co-host Kate Delanoy. Kate, how are you? Doing well. How's it going, Chad? I am living the dream. Thank you for asking. I have, before we get to the important stuff, I have on tap here, and I'm going to butcher the name, uh, Tapache, which is from Commonwealth Brewing. I'm just going to read the short list of ingredients because I don't know how to put this together. It's a pineapple goza with cinnamon, coconut palm sugar, clove, anise, and chili powder. So a party in a can. Basically, I hope you are ready for literally any possible outcome because I have no idea what this is going to be like. (laughs) I am. I am ready. And while you are serving that up, I will get you ready for what we've got coming out over the next couple of weeks. So Bruce Yandel has an economic situation report out today. He does one of these every quarter. So this one's going to be looking back at what we've seen from the economy over the last few months. One of the big things he's going to be looking at is how have the tariffs and the trade situation, how is that affecting the U.S. economy? That's fascinating. One of the things I really want to recommend to our listeners is to read this, first of all, because Bruce's economic reports are always great. Uh, but Bruce is himself sort of a giant in his field. Some of you may be familiar with bootleggers and Baptists. That's kind of all Bruce Yandel. Uh, so he's done a lot of work in a lot of different fields for a long time. And we're lucky enough to have his his economics reports that come out every so often. So I definitely recommend everybody check that out today. I think we've also got an event with Bruce. Is that yes. right? Yes. So September 20th, a couple weeks away, we're going to be doing an event at Longworth and everybody's invited. So I highly encourage you to, as Chad said, read the report, but go to our website on the events page and check it out and RSVP because Bruce... Everybody who goes to see a Bruce event always walks away just so happy they went and, you know, talking about how much they learned. Uh, I can personally vouch for that because one of the first events I attended as a Mercatus staffer was a Bruce event, and I left really happy. That's just to clarify, that's the Longworth House office building here in D.C., right? Yes. So check out mercatus.org slash events, and you can RSVP there. Perfect. And then this Friday, September 7th, is Jobs Day which is one of the most exciting days of the month. Absolutely. Yes. So Michael Farron will be doing his regular checking in on the numbers, looking at what unemployment looks like. What does the real unemployment rate look like? You know, he's got his U5B calculation, which kind of takes from the different calculations put out by BLS and says, okay, if you're looking at all of the people who are unemployed and truly want to work, who is unemployed. And so he'll calculate that number for us and we'll have that up on the bridge, you know, mid-morning on the 7th. Right. So for those of you who haven't been following Michael Farron, he's a labor economist with us here. He's actually on the show today, so you'll get a chance to hear from him on kind of a different topic. But he responds to the Bureau of Labor Statistics monthly jobs reports. And as Kate suggested, he's got kind of a, a metric that we use that we think is a really good indicator that kind of tells people what the employment situation is like on the ground. Uh, So definitely encourage you to look at that. And is that all? Is that all we're doing this week? 
Well, that's this week. But next week, we've got a great paper out from the Monetary Policy Program. And it's looking at the 08 crisis. And it's by David Glasner. And what he finds is that because the Fed was so focused on inflation leading up to the 08 crisis, they actually missed some of the, the real danger that you know could be had by recession and financial instability. And so he makes the case that because the Fed was kind of looking in the wrong direction, the 08 crisis ended up being worse than it perhaps needed to be or could have otherwise been. So as we're heading in, we've got anniversary, 10-year anniversary of several big events coming up, the 7th being Fannie and Freddie being taken over by the government, the 15th is the fall of Lehman. So, you know, this is a really timely paper as we're looking back at what everything was happening 10 years ago. I'm excited to to read David's paper, actually. This is slightly embarrassing, super nerdy story, uh, but this was probably when I was an intern here, uh, just starting out at Mercatus. But on a random lunch break, I took the one of the Fed's meetings transcripts from around the time of the financial crisis, put into a word cloud just to kind of get a visual of what they were talking about. Um, and, you know, David, not surprisingly, is absolutely correct because inflation appears as a giant word right in the middle. Um, so it's even in kind of like a superficial way, you can tell... They were definitely focused on inflation. So I'll be interested to read the paper and kind of see his more in-depth analysis on that and what, what it resulted in. Yeah. And I think maybe your word cloud should make an appearance as well. We'll see. Maybe a special appearance on the bridge. <laughs> Looking forward to that. So speaking of in-depth analysis, what is your analysis of the beer? I don't even know how to begin to describe it. I've, I think it's been a different beer every time I've taken a sip of it, to tell you the truth. It is sour. But spicy and, I mean, floral? (laughs) You said very, very (laughs) confident in in, in your assessment. I mean, I don't – I actually kind of like it, but I I can't imagine throwing it back for a long period of time. It's a good sipping beer. Yeah, this is definitely one of the the slightly heavier ones we've tried. I, I, I get a lot of the pineapple in there. I really like it. I think the sour helps it from being too sweet. It's not cloying. It is still a little little, little thick, a little heavier bodied. I'm with you. I think it's surprisingly well balanced for all the stuff that's in here. Is there cinnamon? There is cinnamon. Okay. I taste I taste the cinnamon. I think. I'm checking the can. Yes, there's cinnamon. All right. Well, I like this. This is an exciting, exciting new adventure. I'm going to give this one, I'm going to give it three and a half out of five stars. That's pretty good for the face that you made <laughs> upon first trying to decide how to describe it. So I, I'll, I'll count that as a win, all things considered. I'm a, I'm a little higher on this, but I think I, I'm a little more generous of a grader anyway. Uh, I'm going to go four out of five. I thought this was surprisingly well balanced for as complex as it was. All right. Well, thanks for bringing us something exciting to try and look forward to chatting again in a few weeks. Great. And speaking of complex, stick around. We are chatting tax reform 2.0. So we've got some great guests, some in-house scholars, as well as uh, a friend from Politico who's joined us today to talk about the latest attempts on the Hill to reform the tax code, where those are going, what the policy issues at play really are. And we'll see if we can answer any and all questions about tax policy over the next uh, 30 minutes or so. Sounds great. Cheers. Cheers.
Last month, House Ways and Means Committee Chair Kevin Brady released what he's calling a, quote, listening session framework for a second bite at the tax reform apple. While many, including yours truly, thought that the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act passed last December would be the last we'd hear about tax reform for at least a few years, Brady's framework gives us the outline for what's been dubbed Tax Reform 2.0. The plan includes permanent tax cuts, new savings vehicles for families, retirees, and students, and reforms aimed at removing, quote, barriers to growth. Since this comes right in the midst of ongoing fallout and effects from Tax Reform 1.0, for example, states adjusting to changes in state and local deductions, it's the perfect time to pause and reflect on where tax policy is now and what it might look like if 2.0 becomes a reality. Here to talk about all things tax, we've got an all-star panel lined up. First, I'd like to welcome to the show Bernie Becker. Bernie is a tax reporter for Politico, known to many of you as the brains behind the morning tax tip sheet. Welcome to the show, Bernie. Hey, thanks for having me. Next, I'm pleased to welcome Veronique DeRuji, a senior research fellow here at Mercatus. Veronique is an economist and nationally syndicated columnist whose research focuses on the U.S. economy, the federal budget, homeland security, tax issues, and financial privacy. Welcome to the show, Vera. Thanks for having me. And last but certainly not least, we're joined by repeat guest Michael Farron. Michael is a research fellow here at Mercatus, focusing on the effects of government favoritism, as well as labor and economic development and transportation issues. Welcome back to the show, Michael. Thanks for having me, Chad. So there are a lot of directions that we could take here. We could talk about the politics. We could talk about the past. We can talk about the future. I think probably the best way to get us started is maybe to kind of go chronologically here, uh, sort of starting with what's happened since last year's tax cuts, and then we'll get around to to 2.0 if that sounds good. So the first obvious question then, uh, as I was kind of joking you guys before we even started, is why did I even ask you guys to come here? (laughs) Why are we talking about tax reform 2.0? So maybe a better way to put that is something like, were there missed opportunities with tax reform 1.0? Are we talking about a completely different slew of issues? What sort of is tax reform 2.0 as as you all understand it? Uh, Well, so I think sort of one of the issues that we saw with tax reform 1.0, Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, whatever you want to call it, is that, you know, they gave themselves $1.5 trillion to cut taxes. And it turned out that that they wanted to do more than that. And they had these sort of strange rules that they had to, to sort of comply with to make sure they Massages. Met, yeah, to make sure that they met Senate requirements. And so it turns out that sort of at the end of the day, you had this rather large corporate rate cut. And then there was these sort of temporary individual cuts, which, ever, you know, which, you know they would all say at the time, we, we would love for these to be permanent, but we just can't do it right now. And so I think they were just sort of like, you know, we've got an election coming up. So it just seemed like now's the time to sort of remind voters, maybe this is perhaps more of a political exercise than an actual policy one that, you know, yes, this is something we would like to do permanently. And, you know, who is standing in your way? It's those evil Democrats. And so that's, I think, a lot of what's going on here. But I, I, there is like, there are a lot of things that they wanted to get done. And and now they're sort of like, oh, yeah. 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 I, I'd add that there's really few things that Republicans are committed to. And it's, and cutting taxes is one of it's it's it on hmm. on the really on the economic side it's like that's that's it and uh you know the hell with spending and and all the rest <laughs> they're here to uh to cut taxes and so that's their that's their signature issue and they and it's one that's pretty popular uh certainly with their base so you know why not revisit it right before the election but i think they also are true believers that there are things that need to be done 
Absolutely. The I don't think you can read tax reform 2.0 outside of the context that it's trying to occur right before the midterm election. But there were a lot of things that didn't get put into the uh, last reform or that got cut out. One of the things that I study in particular is stadium subsidies. And so that uh, private activity bonds, which are essentially municipal bonds that are provided for private activity, meaning private companies that are being benefited by the municipal government borrowing money from them and using the tax-exempt status of that municipal bond to benefit that private company. That was in the original tax reform bill. And then it mysteriously vanished after a while. Some way passed a rumor along to me that it was essentially professional sports interests that said that shall be cut. You must not have that in the bill. I don't know if that's true or not, but it would make sense uh, given that uh, it would have made it a lot harder to borrow money to build billion-dollar stadiums. I'm glad you already took us there, Michael, because I do want to dive into some of the policy-specific issues because I think one thing we can probably agree on is whether this is for political purposes now or whether it's for policy issues, it's reigniting policy debates that I think whether or not they go into law now or whether or not we see these debates crop up time and time again, we're going to have to address them. So I've got kind of my laundry list of specific issues, and I know you guys have been following a number of other issues. I'll just kind of lead off with the one that I think is really hot right now, and it's actually was part of the focus of the very first episode we did of this podcast, which is the SALT deductions issue. For those of you who missed that podcast and haven't followed, obviously, December tax reform law changed the way that people can deduct their state and local taxes. And I know a number of states, particularly higher tax states, are really concerned about this. And just as an observer, it looks like some of those states are starting to make policy changes to try to adjust to, to the SALT changes. Is, is that correct? Are you all following this? So I mean, essentially, you know, what you saw are these sort of these very these sort of high tax states, your Northeast to sell quarter types, New Jersey, New York. And they set up these schemes where essentially you could pay your property or local taxes as a through a state run charity which would then keep you keep the charitable deduction in line for you once you hit that $10,000 cap and the IRS and Treasury had basically said from the start that they were not going to allow this that this was you know we see what you're doing we got you we're on to you <laughs> the issue sort of broader issue there was that you know for a long time now in lots of red states there have been ways to there've been sort of similar programs that allowed people to ensure that their tax dollars were used for things like school vouchers and that sort of thing. And there was not necessarily a a sort of federal benefit to doing this, but it was a way to sort of ensure that your tax dollars were spent in a way that you wanted to. But now with this $10,000 cap, there would be a way for those schemes to be used for a federal benefit. And so now the IRS also had to say essentially, well, we can't we can't allow you to do that either. So basically they're trying to treat them the same way. There's still, I mean, these rules just came out last week, so there's still people trying to sort of wade through exactly what they mean. But yes, I mean, I think there was, and there are other ways for blue states to try to get around this, but this was the main one, and the IRS had been sort of hinting for a while that, no, we're not going to allow this, and they've sort of followed, now followed through on that. Now, it's it's worth reminding people that um, the, the SALT reforms, I mean, they affect mostly, uh, they only affect, actually, um, high-tax states, um, and they mostly affect a vast majority of the people claiming those deductions are high-income yeah. taxpayers, 
right? And they, and they're going to get a hit. I mean, this is take a yeah. hit. There's there's no there's no doubt. And it's kind of interesting the dynamic of seeing all these blue states, right? They're mostly blue states, like just kind of you know screaming at the the. I mean, being outraged by taxes being raised on um, high income taxpayers. So, but there's definitely a dynamic. There's definitely a lot of pushes to actually go back to the old system. I would have preferred if we had gone all the way, um, acknowledging all the distortions. But that that was one of the positive steps, I think, um, in the uh, in the tax reform. Yeah, and it is kind of interesting for all the outcry and negative media about that this is a tax reform uh, that benefits the rich and not the poor. This particular form of tax reform very much did not benefit the rich, but it's largely skipped over or when it's mentioned, it's not that aspect of it is not really addressed. Well, it's because I mean, one of the real incidents of this of this uh, change is that lawmakers uh, at the state and local levels are going to be much more accountable to taxpayers who now will feel the full burden of their state and local tax bills in the way that they didn't before when they could actually deduct it from their federal tax bill. And so there are real implications for for local and state government officials. And so this is why it's, it's one of those rare dynamic where, I mean, actually consequences fall on high income earners and really um, their leaders. Well, leaders. I mean, good heavens! Could we actually have some level of budget constraint? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> if, and I could just sort of tie this to tax reform 2.0 too. I mean, one of the issues you'll see. I mean, the only basically the only Republicans who voted against tax reform 1.0 were Republicans from those states who were who would have lots of constituents who would be hurt by this. And so one of the things I think to watch as we move into tax reform 2.0 next month is, you know. Presumably, they're going to revote on this cap to make it permanent. Will that? How much? You know, sort of uh, hue and cry. Will we hear about that this time? Will that? Will that cause problems for this as it moves forward? Even if we do think it's mostly mostly a messaging exercise right now. So, I mean, I think the salt cap is one of those things that will be. It's going to be sort of one of the central issues of this as this moves on. Not just one point not one. Not just 2.0, as you know, 3.0, 4.0, 8.0. How far are we going? <laughs> we, right? We've got to come up with a better naming <laughs> yeah. uh, scheme at some and point. And Bernie just talked about permanency, and and I, I think one of the one of the things that was really obvious and just quite terrible in the in the tax reform is it's in order to make the number works, they had to make a lot of provisions temporary, and I think that creates a ton of uncertainty, and that that is a problem. And they really did it because ultimately they didn't want to cut spending and they wanted to, you know, to cut taxes as much as they could without any fiscal responsibility. But this is going to be something they're going to have to address. And if they don't address it now, they're going to have to address it. What is it? In, in 2023. Um, yeah. And so, and but it is worth noting, even for the the, the tax cuts that I did not like like the expansion of the of the child tax credit. It is true that anything that is in nature temporary creates massive um, distortion and uncertainty, which are really counterproductive. Not that I'm saying that there's uh, ever productive tax credits are productive. <laughs> They're not, but. 
One of the other issues I think that had a lot of attention drawn to it in the wake of last December's tax reform was the issue of stock buybacks. So this was the fear that if you cut corporate tax rates, that instead of you know better pay for workers, lower prices, more investment, all the sort of good things that people tend to associate with lower corporate tax rates, all you're going to see are corporations buying back their shares, driving up their stock prices, and shareholders just capturing that value. I'm just kind of curious, has it, has it been long enough? Can we tell... Did that happen? Is it happening? Is there any concern about that issue? Or should we be worried about that issue at all? From what I've read about it recently, it's just now starting to accelerate. They anticipated that the stock buybacks would really start to pick up pace in the latter half of the year and the final quarter especially uh, because companies just need time to get their ducks in a row because tax reform passed literally just before the end of the year. But the thing to keep in mind, I think, for this because everyone's running around Raising the hue and cry is a good way to put it. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, that you know, stock buybacks, stock buybacks—they're they're evil, they're the devil, they're whatever. But we have stock buybacks all the time. We have billions of dollars of stock buybacks every year. They're anticipating that stock buybacks may be about last estimate I saw was sixty percent higher this year than they would normally be. So when you hear that uh, stock buybacks are you know, so far this year, 400 million or something like that, then keep in mind that under normal circumstances prior to tax reform, stock buybacks probably would have been like 250 billion instead. Look, I mean, I don't think it's, I don't think it's surprising to anyone that this is happening. And I think everyone knew this would be probably perhaps the central area that Democrats would latch onto when they criticize this bill. But, you know, that's partially because the way, you know, for if, whether you like the bill or not, the way Republicans set this bill up is that the really like the investments and the stuff that would really go to workers is going to take a while to really get into the bloodstream of the economy and sort of the natural response of companies when they get this <laughs> big tax break was to buy back stock and and so I don't think anybody you know I don't think anybody thinks that that says anything even Democrats would say that that doesn't in and of itself say that the bill isn't working or that or that that or that whatever's supposed to happen for workers won't happen. But I mean, I think they sort of don't like like, stock buybacks to begin with. But that in of itself isn't sort of the the huge black mark against this. I may push a little bit on on, on this uh, in that I actually think a lot of Democrats, whether they understand how the, the benefits of corporate income tax and how it works to produce the benefit for workers, either understand or are willing to admit. And so I, I, I think Democrats, uh, even those who understand how it works, are, are very unlikely to kind of say, oh, you know, it takes time for it to, to make its way through. And, and, and the problem is also being brought on by Republicans themselves when they passed the bill and where they were like praising the bonuses and, and all the companies, you know, giving all these signs of like being so happy that they were going to pay out, um, like, you know, so, bigger bonuses, but paid leave and, and things like this, is like they actually kind of gave the, the Republicans and the president kind of gave this impression that the way the tax reform was going to work was going to be immediate. And it's going to be money in the pocket of people immediately when it comes to corporate income tax. When actually the reality is it gets a long process. It's a long process and the benefit to workers will come, you know, at, at the end of a long and important process, which we are seeing happening, which is companies 
because of the cut in the corporate income tax, are starting to invest more capital. This capital leads to more productivity, and this productivity leads to higher wages. And when you have on top of that a growing economy and competition for workers, you have all of this, and it pays off for workers. But but I think there's there is a misunderstanding and there, or a refusal to actually acknowledge that this is how it works. And it wasn't helped by the fact that the administration was very willing to say, oh, look, it's already working. Well, there's no way. It's like the really true long payoff was going to take some time. And and, and I think the marketing-wise, it was not wise. <laughs> yeah. And to build on that too, the most ec- the, the strongest economics take on this that you can have is that uh, the growth comes over time, like Vero said, but you have to actually follow the process. So we're talking about rising productivity because companies are more able to invest in capital, which increases workers' productivity over time. That's how we have ascended over the last 200 years to the fact that you can listen to this podcast on the miniature computer that you carry in your pocket. Let's let's be careful about tying this podcast to productive exercises too strongly, <laughs> Michael. <laughs> So, but the point is, is even with the case of stock buybacks, what is a stock buyback? It is the company that has let out some of the ownership in itself, taking that back, but it is giving the people that want to receive money for that money to then go invest in other places. So what you have to do is you have to follow the, the flow of the money, or in this case, the flow of the capital. It's kind of like saying, okay, on an everyday neighborhood level, uh, I am no longer using this tractor to mow my grass and I don't need it anymore. So I'm going to sell it to my neighbor down the street or I'm going to sell it to the guy across the street, the stockholder, who then will then take that tractor and sell it to someone else. He'll buy stock at another company and then that person will use it to cut their grass, improving their productivity. And so – and what you're doing is you're essentially – galvanizing the greater economy by enabling more capital investment where it needs to flow to. I guess a, a way a way to, to say this is like stock buyback is just one way that uh, resources are allocated more efficiently. She said it much more succinctly. Than <laughs> no, no, no. But it was, I mean, it was important yeah. to get that. Absolutely. And to, and to sort of circle the square on where I think folks on the left are, is I, I think they would they would say that sort of long term they don't believe the investments as you were saying would go to workers that they that essentially corporations will find a way to ensure that shareholders benefit over their workers and that but that stock buybacks in and of themselves you know aren't a reason to think that 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 it is not working yet that it's sort of I think they would agree that it's too soon to make any sort of huge judgments but they fully expect that in the end shareholders will be the big winners in this and the workers will. But it's interesting wages, et cetera, et cetera. that the assumption that the fact that shareholders would be winners implies like a loss. I mean, it's like in a company, it's it's actually really not a zero sum game. A lot of the time, I mean, you have to keep your employees happy, especially in a growing economy. Look, we, I mean, for what it's worth, and who knows how long it's going to last, especially with the trade drama going on, uh, which affects, by the way, the economy in the opposite direction by reducing capital investment that the tax cut um, did. But um, it's, it's 
pretty interesting to see that in a growing economy, there is a real competition for workers, right? When 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 companies are actually giving massive bonuses uh, to 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 hire even people not at necessarily very high level, it 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 tells you that there's workers are are not systematically the losers in a, grow, a growing economy or in an economy where corporations get their tax burden reduced. Absolutely. If anybody's following the minimum wage research and just the, the context of what's going on with minimum wages around the country like I've been, uh, you've noticed that over the last five years, uh, Walmart, Target, and the other big box retailers are essentially in a wage war trying to bump their wages up a little bit each year and hire the best workers and retain the best workers and keep them away from their competitors. Because if you go into a store and it looks sloppy, you're less likely to shop there in the future. So they're really pushing to increase the uh, returns to their workers uh, in order to keep them. Yeah. And we talked about this one of the other times you were on the show, actually, talking about labor force participation, Mm -hmm. unemployment, how service industry jobs are sort of experiencing the same sort of thing that, you know, other industries have experienced in the past. I'm glad we got to kind of the effect on workers and maybe the downstream effects because, well, we've talked a little bit about tax reform 2.0, making permanent some of the tax cuts. The other components of the proposals it is so far seem to me, again, just sort of a non-tax layman, a little different. So I mentioned these are various savings plans for families or retirees. There's some provisions in there aimed at entrepreneurs. I'm interested if you all have have given any thought to these types of provisions, if there's anything in, in there that's sort of novel or interesting from a policy perspective. Well, I, I do think, I mean, the reason you're seeing the retirement stuff in there is that I do think there's an actual legitimate hope that they could do some sort of bipartisan legislation on that this year. That's, it's probably, it's, you know, nothing's definite, but I mean, there's a bill in the Senate that's uh, bipartisan. It's got support there. I think the reason they're putting that out there is that, is that the hope to get something done there. I mean, we've seen some issues with bringing ratification in, into the mix that sort of kind of blows up that conversation. So it'd be a more modest proposal, I think. But I think that's the reason you're seeing that in there is because, you know, you know, the big tax writers on both sides sort of see this as an opportunity to do something this year. Whether that actually happens, they have got a lot of other stuff they want to do. But so I think that's why it's in there. And, and sort of their other stuff is where you're getting maybe more aspirational. Yeah. And there's a huge problem in our current tax code and the way that it benefits, honestly, people like us who work at white collar companies and uh, generally have access to 401k plans. So we can contribute if our if we have a 401k plan individually up to $18,500 this year toward retirement and have that not counted toward federal taxes. If you don't work at a place that has a 401k plan, the most that you can contribute through your IRA is only $5,500. Why is there a special dispensation for 401k plans and not for IRA plans? I couldn't tell you, but it seems like a a lot more sense to simply say anybody contribute up to whatever amount is deemed appropriate to a unified kind of tax-advantaged retirement plan rather than building special little rules for each of these different niches. Actually, if I can think a little bigger and put my dream out there, I think a better option would be, and I know they'd been talking about universal uh, savings account. Um, And universal savings account are what Michael describes without 
the constraint of the money being used for retirement. Right now, you have all these different saving accounts that you can use with different rules, when you can use the money, how much, what the limits are, how much you can deduct, uh, what's the penalty for withdrawing the, the funds before, uh, what you can spend the money on, and all of that stuff. And the, the idea behind a universal savings account would be actually to have this big account has been implemented in Canada and, and in the UK, where you could actually save money. Um, usually, it would be like a Roth. And so basically, you would put after-tax money but then your your interest on the money and when you spend the money uh, whenever you want would not be taxed. And what's important is you can spend it on whatever you want, whenever you want, and, you know, and, and, and put it back whenever or, or not. And it gives a real freedom and flexibility to everyone rather than like you know, you can put that much money for for education and that much for and and never really be able to have money on hand if you have an emergency without paying a big penalty. And I really hope at some point we're going to go there because it's it's worked other places. It's been just a real kind of boost to savings for for this, you know, for for lower income and middle class uh, Americans who don't really have a way, uh, you know, a, a, an attractive way. Right. To save money. Absolutely. I knew that if I said it, Vera would spike it. <laughs> <laughs> so and the other thing is along these lines, the so I completely agree with the the uh, universal savings accounts. And just for to to elaborate on that example a little bit, because this is kind of like a no brainer solution to a problem that has been created by saying, well, we'll do this special thing and we'll do this special thing. We'll do this special thing. We finally got into the point of saying why the heck didn't we just do this once altogether? So um, if you want to – you can borrow money in certain circumstances out of your 401k and out of your IRA retirement savings for a house. For a 401k, I think it's up to 50000 For an IRA, it's up to 10000 Why is there a difference? I don't know. You can put money into education savings accounts. You can put money into a health savings account if you want if – your employer offers a health savings account. But if your employer doesn't, then you're kind of screwed. And so, and if you've put money into your retirement, but you have a major medical expense, or for example, uh, you have a, a family member that has a major medical expense, then you can't, it's very difficult to pull that money out from that dedicated use and then apply it to something else that has had has even higher priority. Or if uh, you want to help your kids out and go, help them go to college or um, uh, help them go to, say, a, a, a private school or, or something like that in high school, then – but you can't use your retirement or your health savings for that. And so a unified account would just enable a lot more flexibility and it would – get us out of this locked-in situation and allow us to use this money in the most valuable way possible, which would be great for economic growth, not to mention human welfare. Not to mention that it would simplify. If we could actually do this and, and get rid of everything else, then you would actually significantly simplify the tax code, which tax accountant would not like. But, you know. <laughs> you, you guys actually kind of anticipated what was going to be my last question, which is a little bit of a two-parter or choose-your-own-adventure question, and that was, what would you love to see 
in a tax reform 2.0, or maybe put a different way, what's kind of the next low-hanging fruit opportunity for policymakers in the in, in the tax space? But maybe the second part of that question uh, would be, what are the odds that we see something like tax reform 2.0? I think based on some of the comments that have been made, our listeners may have a guess at your all's answer. Um, but you guys can kind of you know let me know where you'd like to go with that. Do you do you have a policy that man it'd be great if the next time Congress looks at tax reform, this is what they look at, um, and is that likely to come about now, or are we going to have to wait wait a little bit further down the line? I'm going to let Bernie go first, and then <laughs> I will I will take it completely. Right. Well, so I think you, you're right. I do, I would not expect I would not want your listeners to expect that there will be a new tax law signed <laughs> or new big tax law signed this year. I, you know, I think. Uh, you know, we'll probably see a vote in the House. We probably won't see a vote in the Senate um, for various political reasons. Um, but the truth is, is that, you know, these individual tax cuts were put into place for eight years. So by the end of 2025, there will have to be some sort of vote, one would think. There is probably no reason to think Congress would allow what are essential, what are definitely some middle class tax cuts to go expire. So they're going to have to re look at this in eight and seven years now. So, so mark your calendars. Yeah, mark your calendars. <laughs> we'll be back. December 2025. Um, and so I, they will have to look at some of these things again. You know, whether or not they sort of – I think a lot of the things we're talking about here are sort of, as we're talking about big picture, sort of kind of blow it up and start over again ideas, um, which is not something I think Washington has been particularly good at doing. And so I, I do think realistically you will be seeing more – I think they will be looking at retirement. They will be looking at – uh, pass through businesses, which we which we did not really talk about here, and some of those other sort of hot button issues, but to expect them to sort of try to blow it up and start again is uh, they just have not proven to have that bandwidth previously. But you know, hope springs eternal for some, I guess. I like so, the yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Do you wanna? Sure, sure. Uh, to build off of what Bernie was saying, um, I love the quote. I forget the source though. Uh, there is nothing so permanent as a temporary government program. So I actually don't have. I have pretty good confidence that the the individual tax cuts are going to be a permanent thing in some form. We will have to re-engage on that sometime in the next eight years. As to whether uh, tax reform 2.0 and its current uh, form is going to fly right now, I'm somewhat doubtful, but I know a way that it could fly. And that is to focus on things that there's broad bipartisan support for, kind of like Unified savings accounts. That's a that's an issue that would benefit a lot of ordinary people. That would expand the benefits that are available for some people to everyone. And that's something that every policymaker should be able to get behind. My other idea is for uh, investments in training, hu building human capital, as we say, um, improving a ordinary workers, everyday workers kind of productivity to be counted in the same way as investments in a factory machine or a photocopier at an office, for example. So right now, uh, according to publication 970 in the IRS, you are not allowed to take a tax deduction for worker training that enables that worker to work in a brand new position. So I couldn't Mercatus couldn't fund me and take a tax deduction if I wanted to become an accountant, that it would not be a tax deductible expense. If I wanted to go to a conference to become a better economist, that's another thing. Uh, that would be tax deductible. So there's a very fine niche. As and meanwhile, to, they can deduct. Mm -hmm. They can deduct pencils and 
and all of that stuff. Absolutely. All, all the paper clips that you want. But, <laughs> but yeah, if you want trainer. to train somebody for a, a different position. And so what that also means is that if someone is in the middle of their career and wants to retrain for a new position, think about the, the coal miners in West Virginia and things like that that do need new opportunities but struggle – developing those opportunities. Or if you have a, a young person who is just starting out in their career but doesn't have the knowledge to actually go in and become a pipe fitter right at that moment, that you could essentially change – this one weird trick could <laughs> change tax law to allow – the tax deduction to be taken for that. And essentially what that would do is that would do go a long way to removing the skills gap that employers talk about. Because if you can go out and you can find anybody and say, we want you, we don't care if you have the training. We can tell that you're, you have high character and you're a good worker and you come with great recommendations. We just want to have you come in and train. We're going to pay for the training and then that sort of thing. You'll have people accessing careers more easily. You'll have employers getting their skills, skilled positions that they need, and you have to make it easier for people to change careers later in their life. I mean, I, I if I can slightly um, maybe disagree with my two co-panelists. Please is, do. Is, no, it's, it's it, in a regular situation, I would agree that we could be certain that the tax cut would be extended, but we shouldn't also forget the spending side and the debt side. And the deficit side, we are heading very, very, very quickly within a few years, like a year or two, towards back having back trillion dollar deficits. In seven years, in seven years, where are we going to be? We're going to be at like very, very, very large deficit. And as much as politically they will want to do it, the question is going to be this time around: Can they do it? The 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 tax cut for the rich is definitely going. This is not going to stay. If they don't cut spending, these are going to stay. But I think that there's a real question of whether the middle class tax cuts will be able to be sustained in the condition. I mean, as Milton Friedman said, I mean, and it goes in opposition to what the Republicans believe, right? The size of government is not measured by how much taxes you pay, but how much the government spends. I mean, the government is on the trajectory to spend more money than it ever has with any hope of actually seeing unless of seeing that spending go down unless they reform the drivers of our future debt, Medicare, um, Medicaid, and Social Security. So I think it's going to be for those low-tax lovers out there, I think it is time to stop thinking about taxes and, and start really thinking about about cutting spending, this is the best way to, you know, to assure that the tax cuts that you love so much are going to stay in place. Only oh, had a president who thought that too. Yeah, well, I mean, he does. He doesn't, which is also why. I mean, and to be fair to him, Republicans don't either. That's true. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's not as if we've seen spending cuts under full Republican rules ever. Well, you know, as, as our listeners know, 
uh, often one of the things I try to do as we're approaching kind of the the end of the podcast is look for a, an optimistic, forward-looking, hopeful policy idea that people can go and learn about and get excited about. And I don't know that I managed to do it this time, but I think no, that universal savings account is actually yeah. a really. I mean, people should go and read about it. It's yeah. exciting, so and other countries it, have done it. We just got to it in the middle of the podcast this time. I I, I should have timed it differently so that no. we could finish on that note. So thank you for bringing that back up. That's important. We mm-hmm. we do have it in. There, My pleasure. Uh, but I do think now that we have addressed and responded to certainly every question that could be raised about tax policy and there's nothing left to discuss, uh, I think that's about it for us today. Ever. there's We've solved all of the problems. Uh, that's going to have to be it for us today. Um, I do want to thank our listeners for joining us and certainly thank our guests uh, for being in studio. As you all uh, know, I like to provide our listeners with ways to follow our guests online so that they can keep up with this issue because, tongue-in-cheek comments aside, we have certainly not addressed all concerns about tax reform. So we'll just go around the, the, the table. Maybe, Bernie, I'll, I'll start with you and we'll go clockwise. Uh, if you can just let us, let us know and let our listeners know where they can keep up with your work uh, online in the future. Uh, right. So almost every week, politico.com slash morning tax. You can also sign up to get that in your email box. So if you want to start your morning with... 1,500 to 2,000 words of tax policy. And who doesn't? Who, right, right. <laughs> I, I am your guy. So, And Veronique? So I write for Reason magazine. I write for uh, Creators Syndicate, occasionally for the New York Times and a bunch of other places. But the good news is like, I write also for Mercatus. And Mercatus very kindly puts all of my writing uh, on our website, mercatus.org. And you can follow me on Twitter at Vero Dergy. Isn't everyone already following you on Twitter? <laughs> um, I hope not for them. <laughs> uh, my Twitter handle is uh, Michael D. Farron, and uh, I don't write for as many prestigious outlets as, as Veronique at this point. But the uh, I'd recommend checking out Mercatus's The Bridge blog, where you can find me and a lot of other major Mercatus scholars like Veronique writing on these issues. Great. And listeners, you can find me on Twitter at Chad M. Reese or via email at crees at mercatus.gmu.edu with any questions, comments, episode ideas, or complaints. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>